This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 27, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court is allowing a vast federal surveillance program to continue, tossing aside a challenge brought by journalists and others. Julian Sanchez, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, argues that the reasoning of Justice Alito's majority opinion leaves the security of our most private communications in a dangerous catch-22. The Supreme Court's 5-4 ruling in Clapper v. Amnesty International has essentially announced that even if a government surveillance program is unconstitutional, even if perhaps it violates the Fourth Amendment, the Fourth Amendment rights of Americans, that doesn't matter as long as the program is secret, as long as they never tell you that you've been spied upon because the law says they never have to tell any of the thousands and perhaps millions of people who are spied upon that they are in the government's database, those people have no standing to go to a court and ask them to pass judgment on the constitutionality of that law. This was a case brought by a group of attorneys and activists and journalists who have regular communications with the Middle East who had various pretty good reasons to think that their international communications were especially likely to be intercepted on the broad vacuum cleaner authority provided by the FISA Amendments Act. Uh, And the opinion for the majority said, well, that doesn't matter. You are just speculating. You're speculating that you are likely to be intercepted. You're speculating that you will be harmed by government surveillance, by this invasion of your privacy. You can't prove it. The government doesn't have to prove it. Uh, And in fact, as far as we're able to tell, in the four now almost five years that the FISA Amendments Act has been in effect, uh, never have they notified someone because they intended to bring a, a, a case because intelligence surveillance isn't like criminal investigation surveillance. When they do a criminal investigation, you're doing surveillance for the purpose of prosecuting someone, for the purpose of introducing that evidence ultimately in open court where it can be challenged. Intelligence surveillance is explicitly, if you look at the congressional record here, for intelligence purposes. It is not normally expected that it will be ever introduced in court. Uh, perversely here, if they're intercepting, again, thousands and maybe more Americans, the only ones who will ever be notified that they have been spied on are the ones the government has very good evidence to think are guilty of something, the ones the government decides to prosecute. The great majority who are never prosecuted for anything, that is the great majority who are completely innocent, never learn that they've been spied upon and never have an opportunity to vindicate their Fourth Amendment rights. In effect, the idea here is uh, the Fourth Amendment protects you if the government thinks you're guilty. If you're innocent, you're out of luck. It seems to me that when the government is engaged in an unconstitutional activity, that that is the injury that it is overstepping its bounds in engaging in this activity. Here in this case, they're just saying you don't have standing to uh, protest it or uh, claim that it's happening to you or that you've been injured uh, because you can't present evidence that the government never has to tell you about. And so, so how do we think about security and the Fourth Amendment in this context? One thing that comes out again and again in the majority opinion here is the sense that the plaintiffs in this case are effectively paranoid. As they say, one of the harms they allege that they've been subjected to here is not just demonstrable, provable surveillance, but the idea that because of the incredible breadth of the NSA program, because it makes it 
so reasonable for them to think that they'll be surveilled, that they've had to uh, take steps like flying out to meet with clients in person as attorneys who are obligated to protect the confidentiality of communications and uh, in other ways that they've been unable to uh, be in contact with sources in the Middle East. But if you look back to the pamphlets and debates that surrounded the creation of the Fourth Amendment, the debate over the uh, hated general warrants and writs of assistance that gave uh, customs officials a kind of carte blanche to search any home they wanted, uh, it's very clear that they were concerned about this idea of security, not just the Fourth Amendment right against search, but the Fourth Amendment right of the people to be secure. That is, not just to not have your door broken down and your private things and papers rifled through, but the idea that you should be able to know that they cannot just do that whenever they want. That is to say, even if they don't bust down your door, you should not have to live as though they always could in fear that if they want to, they will. Uh, and that is the crucial security right that I think the majority opinion here uh, fails to recognize at all. With reference to the right of security, how likely is it? that your or my or someone's international communications are being intercepted. The key fact in some sense about the NSA surveillance program is that based on everything we know about it, its scale is truly massive, uh, that really it involves NSA-level uh, collection of millions and, and maybe billions of communications on a, on a daily basis. The, uh, the scale of this, of course, can't be known exactly because the NSA has very steadfastly refused to provide even an estimate of the number of Americans who have been intercepted under these FISA Amendments Act authorities. Uh, but that's actually very relevant when you think about the way the majority opinion here frames uh, objection to the, uh, the, the attempt to challenge the law here. He says, well, all these harms that they're talking about, this belief that they're subject to surveillance is, surveillance is merely speculative. And whether that's plausible, uh, in the dissent, Justice Breyer sort of makes fun of this and says, well, perhaps when it's raining, the pavement will not get wet, but it's reasonable to believe that it will. Um, it's important here to have a sense of what the scale of surveillance is. If 1% of international calls are being intercepted, then even if you have some reason to think that you might be under suspicion uh, or your contacts might be under suspicion, then maybe it is speculative to say that you think you are likely to have been surveilled. If 30% or 50% or 60% of international traffic is being intercepted, then it's not so speculative. Uh, and there's just no indication that there's a recognition by the majority here that that background probability, that scale matters. In the very first sentence of this ruling, Scalia describes the authority under the FISA Amendments Act as one that targets individuals, which is a sort of mistake right off the bat. The FISA Amendments Act involves authorizations of programs of surveillance targeting groups and what the administration calls categories of intelligence targets, meaning general descriptions. Uh, and that, that difference between individuals and groups or categories is actually really significant because it's a way of minimizing the scope of surveillance and minimizing, frankly, the reasonableness of believing that when an authorization is broad, it's just a general description of the kinds of communications that will be intercepted. Well, that's a lot more reasonable. Uh, you know, that, that makes it a lot more reasonable to fear that you're likely to be swept up than when we're talking about individual names being picked out. 
Julian Sanchez is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.